0: Well, good morning. I'll add my welcome to Seth's. We're glad to see you, especially if you're visiting. We are uh, continuing our study of the book of Galatians this morning. Uh, Our sermon text comes from uh, Galatians chapter 3, and we're picking up right where we left off last week in verse 15. Uh, We're going to make it all the way through the end of verse 25 uh, today. Now, the subject for our message this morning is the law. And by that, I don't mean the laws in the United States. We're not going to talk about today how Christians are meant to relate to earthly laws, though that would be a totally fine thing to talk about. Instead, what we're going to talk about is God's law, and in particular, God's law as he gave it to his people in the Old Testament. And we're going to take up the question that Paul does, which is, how does this Old Testament law relate to? salvation in faith? That's our question for this morning. And before we get into it, I want to start with a little truth in advertising. This is a hard passage. It's a hard passage to understand for a number of reasons. The first of which is that the law is complicated It's nuanced. And even in Christian circles, there's some disagreement about how we are meant to relate to it. And so it's going to require some careful attention on our part and some careful thinking. The second reason is that Paul is making a really complicated argument, and we are right smack in the middle of it. So there's this huge paragraph in Galatians 3, and we're taking the middle section out of it. And if that weren't enough, It's a very detailed and nuanced and technical argument. So it's going to require our effort to follow along with what Paul is saying. And then not to belabor the point, the third reason this is challenging is some of the words in this passage are just hard to understand. They're really complicated. They're not transparent. And it takes a lot of work to even know what Paul is saying. So I mentioned that this morning for one really important reason. I don't want us to get lost in them. We're going to take all of those reasons head on. We're going to take and do the work that it takes to understand all of those details. But I don't want us to get lost in the weeds and miss the point. When you read this passage, or maybe you've already read it, it might strike you that some of the verses in, these, uh, in this section don't really belong on our coffee mugs or our chalkboards in our houses, right? They're not the catchy phrases that maybe you're used to. But what Paul is defending is one of the most important doctrines in Christian faith, and that is that we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. And that definitely belongs all over our homes, right smack dab in the middle of our hearts. We are saved by faith alone in Christ alone, and we are not saved by works of the law. We are not saved by our obedience to God's commands. And this is an incredibly important doctrine in Christianity. It's important because people continue to disagree about it. This isn't some technical argument that Paul was having with people in his time that isn't relevant to us today. There are churches right now, this morning, in Nashville, Tennessee, that are preaching that you are saved by works of the law. And friends, even if it's something that you believe to be true, that you're saved by faith alone, maybe you've been in Christian circles for a while and that seems like an obvious thing for you, It's so easy to slip back into patterns where you act like that's not true. On a more personal note, I have lived as if my salvation depended on my obedience. That is a crushing weight to bear. So my prayer for us this morning is that we, as we dive into these details, would come to know the freedom and the joy and the peace That comes with knowing that we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone and not by works of the law. The way that we are going to address this passage, if you are a note taker, we're going to do it in three steps. One of the things, for all of the difficulty of this passage, one of the things that comes out really clearly is in verse 19, which is Paul asking the question, why then the law? Why then the law, he asks. And that is the driving thesis for everything we're going to talk about today. But understanding his question actually takes a little bit of work. Why is he asking it here? Why does it matter in the context of his argument? So the first thing we're going to try and understand is why does Paul ask that question here? Why does it matter for us to know the answer to why then the law? Once we get the question figured out, and that's going to take some time, then we're going to move to his answer. And Paul answers the question in two different ways. The first thing he says is he clears up some confusion. He says, the law was never designed to save you. The law cannot give you new life, he tells us. That's the first part of his answer. The second part of his answer is, the law shows us that we need a savior. So, that's how we're going to do it today. We're going to look at the question we're going to look at two parts of an answer where Paul clears up a misunderstanding and then where he tells us what the purpose of the law is as it relates to salvation. So, if you have found the passage in Galatians 3, I'd ask you to stand now in honor of God's word while I read for us. This is Galatians 3, uh, verses 15 and following. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Imprisoned, everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God, faith. This is God's word for us this morning. You may be seated. So we have our work cut out for us this morning, but before we jump into the passage, I hope you'll allow me a slight aside. I'd like to talk about the clarity of scripture. Christians believe that the Bible is the authoritative word of God. We believe that God has spoken to us through his Son, and through his Holy Spirit, and that his words are recorded in these pages that we have in front of us. And because of that, we believe that the Bible is true. And we believe that the Bible is clear. Now, when you come to a passage like this one, it might be hard for you to believe that. And so it's important, I think, that we talk about what do we mean when we say the Bible is clear. Well, orthodox Christian teaching has never made the statement that every word in the entire Bible is perfectly 100% clear. I think sometimes we start to think about clarity as if it's an all or nothing thing. Either it's 100% clear, or if it's just a little unclear, then you've got to throw the whole thing out because you can't make any sense of anything anyway. That's not what Christianity has taught. What Christians believe is that the Bible is clear enough to accomplish its work of salvation. The Bible is clear enough to communicate its main point. And the main point of the Bible is really clear. It's something we call the gospel. That God made the world. That he made man and women in his image. That because of our sin, we broke our relationship with God. That all of us fall short of his glory. That Jesus, the son of God, came to be a man went to the cross and died, paying the penalty for your sin, taking your place, giving you his righteousness, that we might now be in relationship with God again. We believe the Bible is clear enough to communicate that central message, and not only that, but that through it, people will be saved. That's what we mean when we say the Bible is clear. And so when you come to a passage like this, and you find a a verse or two that don't make immediate sense to you, I would encourage you not to throw out the whole thing, or let alone, please don't throw out the whole Bible. Instead, work to see what do you think that main point of this passage is, and let that help you shape your understanding. So let me give you an example. Verse 20 in our passage says, Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. In my reading this week, Um, it has become clear that we don't know what that verse means. Every commentator I read, every pastor's sermon that I listened to, agrees there are just too many different possibilities. Last count has it somewhere between 50 and 100 different possible interpretations for that verse, which leads us to believe that the meaning of that verse is just unrecoverable. And so when you look at something like that, My question is, are we going to throw out everything else Paul is saying here? If this is a challenge for you, then I would encourage you, I'd love to talk with you more about it. Uh, We certainly have some good resources we can put in your hands to consider it. But what I would encourage you to do when you come to a passage like this is two things. The first is, use the context to help you. Look at what comes before and what comes after. That will help you make sense of some things that could be confusing. The other thing is, we want to look in a passage to see what is crystal clear. And let's start with that and then work our way down, and that will help us understand the things that aren't as immediately clear to us. So just to sort of transition then into the text that we're going to study today, I think two things are really crystal clear. They just sort of shoot right through the text. The first is the question that I already mentioned in verse 19. Why then the law? We're going to spend some time unpacking that in a minute. But the other thing that actually comes through really clearly is the answer to that question. Paul actually says it twice. The first time he says it is in verse 22. He says, why then the law, verse 22, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And then in in verse 24, why then the law, in order that we might be justified by faith. So for whatever else is unclear about this passage, what is really clear is that the law, the Old Testament law, points us forward to be ready to receive faith in Jesus. Now, to me, the burden of this passage is understanding of the why and the how that works. So we have a really nice skeleton. Why the law? To prepare us for Christ. But Paul puts a lot of meat on those bones. And so we want to spend our time unpacking the relationship between the law and salvation in Christ through faith alone. And that's really where we're going to spend our time this morning. So first we're just going to focus on that question. Why then the law? Why does it make sense to ask here? Well, to get that, you have to zoom back. You have to step back for a moment and realize that Paul is making some connections for us with really broad strokes. He's taking a panoramic view of the history of God's people. He's going all the way back to the time of Abraham, when he called his people, and when he made a promise to Abraham, and he's connecting the dots between what he promised to Abraham all the way through forward to what was fulfilled in Jesus. And he's making the claim, and we spent, by the way, all sermon last week explaining this, but he's making the claim that the promise that, he made to Ab- the promise that God made to Abraham to bless him and that through Abraham's offspring all of the nations would be blessed that that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and that that promise is received through faith because it's always been that way. That's the argument that he's making, and he's connecting these dots. But right smack dab in the middle of those two things happening is this really long period in Israel's history where God gave the law. And so part of the question that I think we need to answer was, okay, if beforehand God made a promise to Abraham that the blessing would come through faith, and that that was fulfilled in Jesus, well then how does the law fit into that story? What was God's plan for the law? How does that relate to what came before and after? That's the burden of what's going on here. And before I go any further, I do want to just take a minute and um, explain what I mean by the law. In this passage, the law refers to the first five books of the Old Testament. It was something that God had given to his people. He spoke to Moses on the mountaintop when Israel was in the wilderness, and he gave his people... A way to live. He laid forth for them rules to follow so that they would know how to relate to each other and relate to him. And in general, we sort of think about the law in three broad categories. Three kinds of laws that God gave. Now, there's a lot of overlap between them, so I don't mean to sort of um, create three silos. But there's three general principles in the way we think about the law. The first kind of laws that God gave were civil laws ways that defined Israel as a nation and a people, told them how to relate to one another, things like how to handle debt or how to relate to outsiders. The second sort of main category of laws are what I might call worship laws or cleanliness laws. They told Israel how to worship God, and what became clear through them was that in order to come into the presence of a holy and perfect God, sin had to be paid for, and it had to be paid for through a sacrifice of blood. That became really clear. Through those laws. And then the third kind of law uh, that uh, we saw is something we call the moral law. Something that reveals the truth about God's character and shows his people how to live in the way that honors him. And you think Ten Commandments there Thou shalt not commit murder, thou shalt not covet. Those are examples of the moral law. And so when Paul is talking about the law here, He's referring to that specific time in Israel's history when God had outlined a way for his people to interact with each other and with himself. And so the argument then, if that's the historical context, the argument that Paul is making really in the whole book of Galatians is that we are saved by faith alone. And in chapter 3, we are in the sweet spot. We are in the meat of that argument. And he's addressing a certain group of people who believed that in order to be a follower of Jesus, you had to follow the law. You had to become Jewish in order to become a Christian, these people believed. And so he has been refuting that argument for about 15 verses now, saying, no, to be a follower of Jesus, you do not have to follow the law. You do not have to become Jewish. And so with these two sort of context points in mind, I think it becomes clear why this question matters so much because the people, God's people, I think had a legitimate question. Well, didn't God give us the law? Isn't the law a good thing? If you're telling me that it has nothing to do with the promise of Abraham and it doesn't change it at all, and then that's fulfilled in Christ, well, what about that whole middle period of our history? What about the whole period when Moses was there? What are we supposed to do with the law if it's not for our salvation? And I think that's the question that he's asking here. Why then the law? What was God's purpose for the law? He gave them both. He gave the promise and the law. So how do they relate to each other? That's the question that we're really aiming at today. So to get then to the answer, as I mentioned, we're going to do it in two steps. The first thing is we're going to clear up a misconception. And that misconception is this. The law was never intended and cannot give you new life. The law was never intended to and cannot give you new life. Take a look uh, in verse 21. It says, For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Paul is saying the law cannot give you life. And to understand that, I think it helps us to go back to consider our spiritual condition apart from God. The Bible teaches us that we are dead in our sin. That's the language it uses. We are dead in our sin. And the best image I know for that comes from the book of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel. The prophet is sent out into a valley, and he's told to look out. And in front of him, he sees dried bones. And God tells him that those dry bones represent the spiritual condition of humanity that we are so dead in our sin that our spiritual health is like dry bones. And then God tells him, can these bones live, he asks him. To which Ezekiel says, only you know, which is a good answer. And then God says, they're going to live because I'm going to breathe my spirit into them. New life comes through the spirit of God. Paul makes that point in Galatians 3.1. He says new life in Christ comes through the Holy Spirit. The law does not give you new life. Maybe another way to say that is that the knowledge of the law does not come with the power to keep the law. The knowledge of the law does not come with the power to keep the law, and anybody who has ever tried to keep the law knows that. Because everybody in this room has tried to stop doing something that you hate about yourself. Everybody has tried to stop sinning in one particular way and just saying to yourself, stop it, doesn't work. So you knowing that you're a sinner isn't good enough to change your heart. The only thing that will transform your heart is the power of the Holy Spirit alive in you. One example that I read Uh, as I was preparing for this morning, that I think is really helpful, is that when you put a lion in a cage, you can keep that lion from eating a zebra. But you can't keep the lion from wanting to eat the zebra. And the law works the same way. We can know what right and wrong is. We can try to stop doing some of the things that God tells us are dishonoring to him, but we cannot change our heart through the law. Only the Holy Spirit gives you new life. That's what he's trying to tell us right here. And he actually even takes it a step further. Go back to verse uh, 21 again. Because he's asking, this is a great question, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? So God made a promise through Abraham, and then he gave the law that couldn't change our hearts. So isn't that contrary Aren't those things contradictory? Paul says, certainly not. For this reason, if the law had been given that could give you new life, then you wouldn't need a Savior. That's what he means here. If the law had been given that could give you new life, then righteousness would be by the law instead of righteousness being by the promise of faith in Christ. And that is where I think we transition to this next point of trying to understand, well, okay, Paul, what is the purpose of the law? Well, if it's not to save us, then what, how could it possibly prepare us for Jesus? And that's the burden of this next section that I want to I walk us through. And I'm just going to summarize the answer because it can get a little complicated in this section. So I'm just going to tell you what I think the verses mean, and then I'm going to try and show you. And to do that, I'm going to quote from John Stott, who has written one of my favorite commentaries on Galatians. If you haven't seen it or picked it up, it's really wonderful. And and John Stott says this, The purpose of the law is not to bestow salvation, but to convince us of our need for it. The purpose of the law is not to bestow salvation, but to convince us of our need for it. The purpose of the law is, this is Stott still, to lift the lid off man's respectability, to show us that we aren't as respectable as we think we are, and to reveal to us what we are really like underneath. We are sinful, rebellious, guilty, and under the judgment of God, helpless to save ourselves. That is the purpose of the law, to show us our sinfulness and to show us a need for our Savior. So let me show you where I think I find that in the text. And to be honest, there's sort of two different images that need to relate to one another for us to be able to understand that. And you kind of have to hold them both at the same time and look at them from all sides to really uh, connect with the the, uh, main point here. So we're going to take them one at a time and then try and figure out how they relate to each other. The first image is um, given in verses 15 through 18. And this is a legal analogy. And I love it that Paul kind of knows that he's not being clear because he even says his analogy, and then in verse 17 he says, this is what I mean. So he's kind of clearing up something that we might not have understood. he kind of gets that. So here's the example. It says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Skip down to verse 17. This is what I mean. The law... Which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So, Paul's using a legal analogy here to show us that the law did not annul the promise that God made to Abraham. And he's sort of saying, well, think about a last will and testament or a covenant that's written, that's signed, sealed, and delivered. Once that thing is written down, something that comes after it doesn't change that. That's what he's saying about the promise that he made to Abraham, that God made to Abraham. The law didn't change that. I want you to think about that promise for a moment. It's it's recorded in the book of Genesis, where God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And through your offspring, all the nations are going to be blessed. And I'm going to be your God. And you're going to be my people. And then God makes a covenant with Abraham. It's this really um, unique scene where these animals get lined up and they get divided in two. But what the, the image is there is that God walks through those animals. And he says, God says, what that means is, if this promise doesn't come true, then I, God, am going to be separated in half. So in other words, God is making a promise to Abraham based on his name, based on his authority, based on who he is. It's not like a will that's notarized. It's not something that's written in stone or even signed in blood. This is a covenant that God made with Abraham based on his name and his holiness and nothing can annul it. Not even the law. So God is, or Paul is showing us here that the law was a temporary administration. It was something that was never intended to be eternal. It was something that's meant to point us forward to something else. And that's where the second image really becomes helpful. This, how does the temporary thing point us forward to something else? That comes out uh, in verses um, 23 and following. We're dealing with this imagery here of being imprisoned, under the law. I don't know if you caught that, but it says it a couple of times that we are imprisoned under the law, which is a really interesting phrase. And Paul talking about the law in a really negative way. But the Bible talks about our sin that way all the time, that we are enslaved to sin. That we are in bondage to our sin and the law could not free us from our sin. Only the Spirit can free us from that. But he he helps us see what he means when he says that we're imprisoned under sin, by giving us another analogy. And it comes out in 24. It says, So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. So this word, guardian, is really the key to understanding these verses. And this would have been immediately apparent to the people who he was writing to. Your translation might say tutor or schoolmaster, but the reality is we don't really have exactly the same kind of person in our society a guardian or a tutor in that society would have been somebody who was responsible for looking after the children. They would have been responsible for making sure they got to school on time, to making sure they were doing their right things, to making sure they weren't getting hurt, to disciplining them sometimes. And this person was not a very nice person, a very harsh person. I think our best analogy here is to a nanny or an au pair, but not like Mary Poppins, right? This person is more like Miss Hannigan from the musical Annie, who is tough, And mean and uncaring. And what I think is important about this is that we're again seeing this temporary nature of the law, that we're really being cared for by a guardian, by a nanny, until something is ready to be given to us, until we grow up into adulthood. And what I really like about this analogy is it speaks true to my experience with my kids. Sometimes I drop them off at daycare or to child care, and when we come to pick them up, they don't want to leave. Sometimes when children have a nanny, sometimes when children have an au pair, they grow so attached to that person that they don't want to come back to their parents when it's time. And I think that's what God's people are doing here. They're getting confused. They're looking back and they're saying, no, we want to hold on to this nanny, to this guardian of the law. We don't want to let it go. And Paul is saying to them, no, no. You're no longer under a guardian. You are now sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ. Don't hold on to the old way. This law was meant to point you to something else. So those are the two images that Paul gives us to try and understand how this law might point us forward to something else. But he does explain it. And I think we're now ready to hear his answer 28 minutes in so here is the answer verse 19 why then the law it was added because of transgressions it was added because of transgressions now what this does not mean is that we were sinners who needed to know how to live that is true but that's not what he means The law didn't come because we were sinners, or at least that's not what he's saying here. He's saying the law came so that we would know we were sinners. The law came to make wrongdoing or sin a legal offense. In other words, we didn't know the things that we were doing were dishonoring to God until the law came. Paul talks about this a lot in Romans chapter 7. So I'll point you there to read it, but I'll just cite one thing that he says. He says, I wouldn't have known that coveting was wrong unless the law told me not to covet. So the purpose of the law here is to show us that we fall short of the glory of God. And that way, I think the law serves as sort of a measuring stick against against which we are meant to judge ourselves. God reveals himself in his law. He reveals his holiness and his perfection and his glory. And when we look at ourselves up against it, we find ourselves wanting. We find ourselves falling short of that glory time and time again. I think one of the images that Matt used when we preached through the uh, Ten Commandments is really helpful here. So I'd like to just use it again and sort of take it another step forward. Matt talked about how he plays basketball in uh, the backyard with his kids and when he does, he's, like, super amazing, right? Like, he can run circles around his kids. He can make all his shots. He can block their shots because they're, like, super short. And he's like, I'm the best basketball player there is. But then when he compares himself to somebody like Michael Jordan, of course, the greatest basketball player of all time, he, um, he realizes that he's really not all that great, right? And he finds out that he falls really short of an objective standard of good basketball playing. And the law is just like that. That apart from the law, we might be left to think we're, we're pretty good in and of ourselves. We compare ourselves to the people around us. I'm doing okay, thank you very much. But the law says not so fast. The law says compare yourself up against an objective standard of God's holiness and then see how good you look. And so one other thing that I want to say about this is I think the law not only serves to show us of our inadequacy, but points us forward to the need for a savior. And so I want to go back to the basketball analogy for just another second. Because I think if you were thinking, feeling pretty good about yourself and your basketball playing, and then you put yourself up against Michael Jordan, and then you realize that our country was going to the Olympics, And we were trying to put together the best basketball team to win the gold medal. You might, once you've judged yourself against a good standard, recognize that somebody ought to go instead of you. That maybe you ought to send a substitute in your place who can actually do the darn thing. And that is the point of the law. That not only do we fall so far short of achieving it, friends, we cannot, Keep the law. It's not just that you don't. You can't. But Jesus did. And so he fulfilled every word of the law perfectly and goes in our place to pay the penalty for our sin that we might now be pleasing to God. That is the beauty of the gospel. That is the purpose of the law. That we might measure ourselves to be failures, to fall short of the glory of God, but to see Christ, to see Christ as perfectly holy, taking our place that we might come to know God through his sacrifice on the cross. That, I think, is what Paul is getting at here. What is the purpose of the law? To prepare us to receive salvation through faith alone, not by works of the law. As we're Transitioning here to our last few minutes, I'm just going to summarize what we've said so far and then talk a little bit about how this might matter for us. I'm going to read for us from Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians to summarize the purpose of the law. Luther says, and this is a slightly abridged version, Luther says, "...the principal point of the law is to make people not better but worse." That is to say, it shows us our sin that by the knowledge thereof we might be humbled, terrified, bruised, and broken. And by this means we may be driven to seek grace. And so to come to the blessed promised offspring who is Jesus Christ. The purpose of the law is not to make us better, but to make us worse that in our desperation we might be driven to the beautiful promise of grace that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is getting at here. And I think as we think about why this matters for us, the point is this. You have to see your sinfulness before you can taste the beauty of grace. You have to connect with how bad you are how terrible you are, before you can connect with the beauty of the love of Christ for you. And so I'd like to think just a little bit about some specific ways that this teaching might be relevant to us. It's not just limited to the question of whether or not you have to be Jewish in order to become Christian. There are far-reaching implications for us. And so the question I want to ask you to consider is, is the law serving the right function in your life? When you come to the law, do you feel hopeless before it or do you find confidence in it? Are you like the rich young ruler in Luke 18 who says to Jesus, I've kept the law, every part of it since my youth, what else do I have to do to find eternal life? Are you like the Pharisee who says, thank God I'm not like this tax collector? Now, of course, all of us um, would say no to that. But the reality is that those kinds of feelings sneak into our hearts. They're hard to find. They're hard to root out. And so I'd love to just give you a couple of ways that I think those kinds of inappropriate uses of the law reveal themselves in our lives. The first one is um, what I call at least I don'ts. So you look at other people around you, and you look at their sin, And you feel really good about yourself because at least I don't fill in the blank. I might just take the example of lust here. So sure, I look at people with lustful intent, but at least I don't look at pornography. Or sure, I look at pornography, but at least I don't have sex outside of marriage. Sure, I've had sex before I've been married, but at least I don't engage in prostitution. Sure, I engage in... You get the point. We can always compare ourselves to other people and make ourselves feel better that we don't have their particular sin burden. And when we do that, we are shrinking the law down to size. We're saying, Look, I'm completing this one part of the law and I feel really good about that. God's going to be pleased with me. We fail to remember Is that if you break one part of the law, you break the whole law? We cannot find hope in our station before God because we complete a small part of the law. No, the law is meant to drive us to desperation in ourselves. The other way that I think this rears its ugly head is what I call badges of honor things that you do that make you feel really good about yourself and maybe other people don't do and you look down on them for it. And I think social justice movements are really easy to fall into this way of thinking. I mean, of course, Christians should care about social justice. We should be unified and dedicated to loving our neighbors as ourselves and speaking up in our society for how to care for the most vulnerable. But that can go a step too far when you start to think my social justice issue is the most important one, and look at how good I am for doing this thing, God's going to be really pleased with me, and oh, by the way, if anybody else doesn't agree with me, how could they possibly be a Christian? It sort of creates two tiers of Christianity. And now we're finding confidence in the law. We're finding confidence in our ability to keep the law instead of a desperation before it. Friends, as we close today, I just want to talk to two different groups of people, and then I'll offer a prayer for us. The first group is if you've come in this morning thinking that you are basically okay, that you're pretty good in general, you live a pretty good life, you don't do really bad things, and you hope that the good things in your life outweigh the things that you do in secret. Friends, I have lived like that. That is an empty, dead-end way of living, and it is a crushing weight to bear. And so if you are finding yourself not desperate enough in your sin this morning, then I would encourage you to turn to God's word and confess your sins, connect with your desperation, and realize that until you recognize your sinfulness, the idea of grace is never going to change you. If, however, you came in this morning and you didn't need to be reminded of your sinfulness, you already know that you're damaged goods. You already know the things that you have done have made you so far from the glory of God that you think maybe you are even unsavable. Then to you, I would say, there is nothing that you have done that God's mercy cannot save you from in Christ. He is enough. Friends, Ephesians chapter 3 is a prayer that Paul offers. He prays that along with the saints we might have power to comprehend Christ's love for us. And he prays that we might know the width and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ. And the law is meant to serve as the measuring stick for both of those things. For it's not until you know how far that your sin has separated you from the love of God that you can understand how wide is the love of Christ for you. And it's not until you know how short of the glory of God that you are until you will know how long is the love of Christ for you. And it's not until you know how low You have sunk in your sin that you will know the height of Christ's love for you. And it's not until you sink into the depths of your sin that Christ will meet you there in the depths of his love for you. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, how gracious and merciful are you to redeem us from our sin. How loving are you that you would send your Son to die in our place while we were still your enemies. How glorious are the riches of your grace that rescue us from the depths of despair. We pray this morning that you would give us the grace to save us, that you would give us the faith to believe it, and that we might be filled with the hope that is ours in Christ Jesus. It's in his name that we ask these things. Amen.